My thoughts, indeed our thoughts this morning, have been triggered by the lead-up to today's readings in our reading planner, because I found a theme of preparation ultimately for victory, which has spoken to us over the last week or two. And this morning really seems to be a culmination of that. It's something I want to dwell on this morning at our memorial meeting, because as opposed to the clear victory we see in the scriptures, we have to be strengthened against a time of conflict and uncertainty. Indeed, dare I say it, we're now living in a new age of warfare, and possibly the last of them all. The instability, of course, on the world scene is undeniable, driven by various proxy wars which have no palatable goal, which are fought in desperation. One side or another spends its billions and its thousands of human lives demolishing an aggressor, and is faced by another worse aggressor as a direct result of what they thought had been victory. Whether they feel that some task is achieved by boots on the ground, bombs in the air, the chess pieces are so scattered by each action that humanity can no longer work towards its own endgame. But whilst they cannot find the way out, God, of course, plots the way forward. And at home, if not by war, we're similarly beset by a world which will move the goalposts with what it allows and what it accepts in people's lifestyles, with an inability to properly cope with many things, crime and malicious acts. No clear way is found to deal with the abuse of the poor or the helpless. And there is, of course, a blatant acceptance of ways of life which focus only on man's own desires. Whichever of these battles, whichever of these turmoils we pick, we have to instead look to our victory then. Our victory not invested in what we call the world, but invested in a depth of hope which is the very opposite of the shallows in which the planet's population currently flounders. If we trust in the plan of God, then we also need to live in the depth and breadth of the ways he has set. So how do we strengthen ourselves to walk as light stands above and beyond a dark and troubled world? I'd like to read first a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Don't worry about turning to it. I'm going to read it from the text of the very modern Message Bible, which I think, when read with care, provides a meaning for our lives. And here's that passage. What I want to talk about now is the various ways God's Spirit gets worked into our lives. This is complex and often misunderstood, but I want you to be informed and knowledgeable. Remember how you were when you didn't know God, led from one phony God to another, never knowing what you were doing, just doing it because everyone else did it? It's different in this life. God wants us to use our intelligence to seek to understand as well as we can. For instance, by using your heads, you know perfectly well that the Spirit of God would never prompt anyone to say, Jesus be damned. Nor would anyone be inclined to say, Jesus is master, without the insight of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Corinthian society was, anecdotally, very much one where people were led from one thing to another by the trends of society, and there was little prohibition of the morally inept or perverse. Our brothers and sisters who read that passage first 
were separating themselves from ways of life which we're probably seeing a parallel of today. They were also living in an empire which was willing to scheme against and suppress those who accepted teachings which it did not endorse. It was a real physical conflict at times. The word written and guided by the Spirit is, of course, able to portray for us that Jesus Christ is Master. And if it can do this, it should be worked into our lives, because it's our best defence. The Spirit can reveal our heart's desires. There is no armour tough enough to prevent God's power from entering us and discerning our innermost thoughts. By way of an exact opposite, there's nothing that the world around us can do to separate us from the trust of God held in our hearts. Let's consider two passages with very similar phrasing which show these two points. Very well-known passages. Firstly, from Hebrews chapter 4. And we know that it says, For the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. But we also read, don't we, in Romans 13, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Although the passage I've just read is from Romans, I think it could equally apply to the struggles that the Corinthians and others would have faced, and the struggles that we face against the social norms of our day. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that anyone here this morning wants anything other than to put on the armour of God and to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus. However, of course, nor am I suggesting that either you would or that we should go out now and overthrow world government. For not only is that patently impossible in our current form, but that very passage in Romans is from the chapter which starts by talking about the position of the rulers around us. We should not try to do them harm or rise up against them. They've been put in place not for their end game, but for God's. So instead, dear brothers and sisters, what I want to do now is focus on how our clothing can be the Lord Jesus Christ by putting on his example and remember, remembering that his victory on the cross is not just a product of his faith, which was so great, but also a product of him being informed and knowledgeable, as that passage from 1 Corinthians said, alongside his inherent trust in his Father. Because Christ took the time to be informed about God's ways. It was his very being. We may not be saved by knowledge alone, sure. But knowing how all the parts of God's word can build us up, well, what's better than that? So, going back to those readings. In our readings at the moment, the book of Proverbs is providing its own beacon of light. But how can we apply that to the victory that we need to seek, dear brothers and sisters? How can we apply that to the armour that we need to put on? Solomon maintained a rare rule of peace during his dynasty. 
Yes, a human peace, true, which would not last. But in his lifespan alone, what did he know about war? And as for the other authors of the Proverbs, what of them? Do we know that they willingly went to war? I'm not sure that we do. Although I'm willing to be corrected on that one. Yet consider words like these. Aren't they words for troubled times? Proverbs 21. A wicked man hardens his face. But as for the upright, he establishes his way. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. So when Jesus was fighting against the old way, laying down his life on the cross, no doubt Proverbs would have been in his mind, as with the rest of the scriptures, for Christ was more upright than his cross. Deliverance was for him and of the Lord. And as a king of kings to come, it was his glory to search out the matter, as we see in today's reading of Proverbs 25. These are more Proverbs of Solomon, compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. A great deal of today's chapter in Proverbs would surely have been recalled by the Lord on his dying day. He would have used it as proof that God knew all things, that God knew the plan for him. And he would have used those examples right up to his last breaths on that cross. Verse 6 of our chapter in Proverbs today, for example, warns the hearer not to stand in the place of the great, but be welcomed into it at your appointed time. Christ was a humble man. He was the new counterpart to Moses, who himself was known as an extremely humble man. Christ would only come into God's presence in full once he had done his will in full. In verse 8 of this chapter, we read that one should not hastily go to court. What will you do in the end when your neighbour has put you to shame? From the New King James. Christ was anything but hasty. He did not rush through his own defence and trial. He allowed God's glory to shine and for God to provide the words. He was not put to shame by his friends and neighbours as far as they tried to humiliate him, but instead they crucified him to their eventual shame. Verse 9. Debate your case with your neighbour. Do not disclose the secret to another. That sinner next to Christ, on his cross next door. Why did Christ spend time welcoming him to the message of eternal life? That sinner was willing, even in desperate circumstances, to trust and love his neighbour. Eventually he came to that realisation, not a minute too soon, and he knew that that neighbour was the only person who could save him. Maybe Christ told him this first. Maybe he recalled it as he debated with him. And see, nobody remembers what that sinner next to him did wrong. But instead, everyone remembers that Christ blessed him. Then moving on, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And that was Christ's wealth on the cross, wasn't it? 
The word apples is the same used for the male lover in the Song of Solomon, a symbol of the relationship of Christ with his followers. Followers that Christ was willing to find even when they couldn't physically follow him and they were nailed to pieces of tree next to him. Yes, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Despite all of the turmoil that occurred during Christ's crucifixion, and I'm sure nobody sat there with delight, but those who sat under his cross... Those who stood there attentively, those who were waiting for something to happen next, they would eventually have great delight. And as for that plaque which was stuck over the top of him, with the inscription on it, that debated, disputed inscription, well, those words, the King of the Jews, that banner will eventually be love. That phrase will eventually have no negative connotations. It won't be disputed. Christ will be King. Psalms 23, verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Moving on then, Proverbs 25, verse 15. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Christ did not come at that time to overthrow kingdoms, to come by force. But he knew the gentle speech possessed of him and his disciples was enough to change the heart of the centurion standing there. And in future it would be enough to hold the consciences of rulers in chains. Verse 16, have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need. Now Christ recognised the need for God's word more than anyone. Honey is a symbol of God's word, an ointment and a symbol of strength in battle. Jonathan ate it and was strengthened even though Saul prohibited it. Sometimes the symbol of honey is used in different ways. But here, Christ ate and ate. He needed everything he could find. Moving on again, a man who bears false witness against his neighbour is like a club, a sword and a sharp arrow. Here in verse 18, we really sense the battle that Christ fought and the wisdom of Solomon and the inspired text knowing the man who would bring peace. Because the mob who came with Judas believed one way or another that they somehow needed to come with vicious weapons. And they were no doubt ready to use them. But there was no cure in the sword. Christ even healed the work of the sword. And if those around him had really known the scriptures, perhaps there was no need to doubt that he was dead, but he was still pierced with a shaft, some ways like an arrow. Christ knew when reading this that all these weapons would feature in his death. Yet God's word protected him. 
Do you need proof of the sort of people this verse applies to? Then read the next one. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. Conflict, but victory. Verse 20 of that chapter in Proverbs, like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Instead they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 69 verse 21. And then moving on, perhaps to the real story of victory in Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Christ was the bread of life, even to those who did not yet know him. There were people standing around him, surely, who only really knew who he was after he died. And we didn't stand there and look on in the half-light of the darkness which God cast on the land. Our battle's endgame is not to physically destroy enemies, but it is to live in separation from their goals and their ways of life, and yet to show mercy. The armour of God is to defend and protect, but within the core behind it, you maintain the love of God and his ways. Dear brothers and sisters, I don't know for sure how much of that passage in the Proverbs is effectively messianic. I think you'll spot as readily as I do that some verses don't easily fit in with that pattern, do not easily fit with the pattern of the Messiah. But perhaps they don't need to. It's simply an overall fit. It is, if you like, the overall battle strategy that worked for the greatest man there was. The wicked harden their faces against God, and the righteous harden their armour by his refining fire. These verses can be taken two ways. They can seem so daunting by the standard they set, or they can be an overall plan, an overall goal. In some ways, I think that proverbs do provoke conflict, especially these ones. It is in this way, which is your side, which do you serve? And the preface to these proverbs, that they were cut out by Hezekiah's servants, copied, scribed, memorised, that's again another telling point. Hezekiah had cut down idols and symbols of false worship, but when it came to a confrontation beyond his physical power, he was swift to pray to God. And I'm sure these verses featured in his thoughts. Hezekiah was swift not only to allow the spirit to search out his heart with a two-edged sword, but he actually spread out what was offending him before God, so that he integrated God into the process so much. He didn't rely on God looking for it. Hezekiah let God see. He was willing for that intervention to happen. Ultimately, we see that the continual turmoil in those days was brought under God's control quickly and dramatically. 
Boots on the ground didn't really matter. Nor did the lifestyle and the ambition of whichever commander was sent by the foreign force. When I spoke of upholding light stands earlier on, perhaps we can now think of those people who didn't reply to Rabshakeh. Second of Kings 18, verse 36. But the people kept silent. They didn't say anything, for the king's command was, don't answer him. Why am I picking out these people? Sometimes, like people before and after those days, there's a need to be separate, to allow God to be the defence and not to rely on our own words. Being separate and trusting in God is a worthy course. Those people stood on the wall were a light on a hill. Their confidence in the wisdom of the current rule in Jerusalem and what powered that rule was above and beyond their fear of the men below them, even though the tension was so great. By clothing ourselves with the message which guarded Christ, we can be similar. We can follow Christ's example, only speak when it is right, ignoring temptation and folly. Don't forget that a light stand is silent, and you only occasionally see those who have lit it. So when we do have cause to spread God's word, we must of course do so. When people want to know where the light has come from, or where we can see an opening. But when we're watching and waiting in our own lives, walking on our own paths, we can do so in the security of our armour. The verse I'm about to read shows the power of God, and it speaks of the mediation, I think, as well, of Christ before the Father. And we remember not just the one true way now, but also the mediation which works for us whilst we try to walk in that way. Proverbs 16, verses 13 to 15. As messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. In the light of the king's face is life and his favour is like a cloud of the latter rain. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. God loved and loves his son, and we're immensely grateful for his death and resurrection. We remember it now. We remember this, the greatest victory, and we remember that death could not hold him.